Laudator Jesus Christus. Praise be Jesus Christ. This is Matt Gaspers, Managing Editor of Catholic Family News, and I'm joined as always by my friend and colleague Brian McCall, who is the Editor-in-Chief of CFN. Hello, Brian. I hope you're doing well today, and a happy Feast of Candlemas to you and yours. Yes, happy Feast Day to you. And we've got uh, several important stories to discuss with you today, kind of take a closer look at them. Our stories this week include, first off, the Pope's current trip to Africa, which includes visits to the Democratic Republic of the Congo, as well as South Sudan. Also, Francis's latest handwritten response to Father James Martin, SJ, in answer to yet another LGBT dubia. The Pope seems to respond to his dubia very quickly, whereas he ignores others. I think we know what we're talking about there. Um, We're also going to look at the newly appointed prefect of the dicastery for bishops. Going to look at this particular bishop's background and do some analysis. Maybe, um, you know, he's not very well known. I personally had never heard of him before. So we have a little bit to look at there. And we're also going to look at more evidence, sadly, of massive decline in the church since the Second Vatican Council, specifically in the the nations of the Netherlands and Germany. And then finally, we have some very good positive news to share with you at the end uh, about Mark Houck's victory in court, which is a huge win for the pro-life movement. So those are the stories we're going to look at today. But before we get to the news, as always, we will spend a few moments pondering the things that are above, as St. Paul says, and take a look at the church's liturgical calendar and try to ground ourselves in the spiritual riches of Holy Mother Church. So as I mentioned a few moments ago, uh, today is the Feast of Candle Mass, as it's colloquially known, but more uh, formally, it's known as the Feast of the Purification of the Blessed Virgin Mary. We're coming to you live on Thursday, February 2nd, the year of our Lord, 2023. And this feast was the uh, subject I chose to focus on for my letter to readers this month. Brian and I alternate uh, writing a brief note in the newspaper to our subscribers and encouraging those who are not yet subscribers to consider subscribing. So as I note in my letter, which is now available on our website, catholicfamilynews.com, I say, Uh, After the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they carried him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And thus begins the gospel for today's feast. You would have heard those if you went to Mass today, or maybe you'll be going later today. Uh, And it's the last, this is the last feast of the Christmas season, in which Holy Mother Church commemorates both the purification of Our Lady, as well as the presentation of the infant Jesus in the temple 40 days after his birth, also the fourth joyful mystery. Uh, As the aged Simeon rightly said, our Lord is, quote, a light to the revelation of the Gentiles, but he is also a sign which shall be contradicted. Prophetic words which point to the opposition he would face during his public ministry, which was directed towards the destruction of the devil's works and the salvation of souls. And as we move ahead on the liturgical calendar, uh, especially as we enter into uh, the upcoming season, kind of pre-Lenten season of Septuagesima, we'll start to notice the spiritual combat in the readings and such to intensify. Um, 
So yeah, yeah. The the feast today really a beautiful feast. If you can get to a high mass with the blessing and procession of candles, but the the lesson of the feast is is really I think appropriate for our time, right? Because we live in a world. What's the classic thing people say? Well, I'm spiritual but not religious. I I just commune with God. I don't need and the, the Novus whole Novus Ordo premises. We don't need all these ceremonies and these things. We can just sort of be with God, right? Beginning mm-hmm. with that Protestant idea, it's really flourished in, in modern naturalism. Well, what does this feast show us? The Blessed Virgin Mary needed no purification. She did not give birth in the way that women do since the fall of Eve, right? She was a virgin before, during, and after the birth of our Lord. So mm-hmm. she did not need purification, right? Secondly, our Lord did also did not need to be offered to the Father. He was God. Right. But what do both Our Lady and Our Lord do? They perform these ritual ceremonies required by the old law, still in effect until the crucifixion, uh, to show us we can't just be, I mean, they are the the two people who have every right to say, I don't need this. Right. Mm -hmm. Our Lady perfect. She needed, she was full of grace already. Our Lord obviously was God himself. He could have said, well, these don't apply to me. But what do they show as an example? That, that humility, that those who really don't need them submit themselves anyway. And that is why these ceremonies of tradition are so important to us. We need them. And they are showing us a way to not have disdain for these ancient ceremonies, uh, but to see them as uh, our obedience to them as necessary. And this Mass is very, very ancient. The prayers go back mm-hmm. really to the earliest days of the church. Uh, and one in this time of darkness in the winter uh, this time of showing us that Christ is that candle. If you read those trip, the blessing of the candles. There's beautiful symbolism about how our Lord is represented by mm-hmm. the, the candle. So really beautiful, rich feast. Definitely. And speaking of other feasts that might are coming up on the uh, church calendar tomorrow, we will celebrate the feast of St. Blaise, which also incorporates the candles that will be blessed today. Uh, obviously, the blessing of throats is the traditional way of doing that. Um, then Saturday, we celebrate the Feast of St. Andrew Corsini. Sunday is Septuagesima Sunday. Maybe Brian can tell us a little bit more about what that means, because I know that's been also eliminated from the new calendar, Septuagesima Sunday. Yes, so it uh, is very again very very ancient. It goes back to the very early days of the church, mm-hmm. uh, when forty days was seen to be not enough to prepare for the mysteries of our redemption, and so uh, they wanted to sort of ease in to Lent proper, Quattrocesima, mm-hmm. which began forty days before Easter, and so in the early church they would start giving things up, and they had a much more rigorous fast. So yes. literally, about all they ate was bread and water, <laughs> a few vegetables, but. They would sort of each week, the, seven, the, the three weeks before Lent begins, they would give up some things, dairy, meat, you know, et cetera, until they finally got to Ash Wednesday when, when it was the full fast. So really, it, it, it over the centuries did evolve in terms of its uh, practices, but it's meant to prepare us, right? So we're not sitting there on Ash Wednesday. Oh, wait, it's, what am I supposed to do? It's Lent. Yeah, I guess I should. Yeah, I'll give up some chocolate. Right. Okay. Thanks. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Our Lord gave his life and you're going to give up. Or I love is I'm giving up cookies, but not ice cream. Oh, 
Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Generosity of spirit. Uh, but it, that's what this is meant to be as a time of preparation, right? If you have a big meeting at work or a test, you don't just show up the day of the meeting. You, you prepare, you spend time planning. Okay. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I need to bring. And that's what Septuagesima is supposed to, to be. We see the purple vestments come out, some simplification of the ceremonies. The Alleluia disappears uh, as of uh, this Saturday uh, as a kind of, okay, get ready. Here's some few visual and auditory signs to tell us you should be thinking, getting ready so that you're not caught unaware for, for Easter. Yes. And again, as you said, the new mass, since they don't really care about you know, fasting and abstinence and penance too much, they you know certainly don't need uh, Septuagesima, so they just eliminate it. <laughs> right. And just to cap off the description you gave, this is what it says in Divine Intimacy on the Meditation for Septuagesima Sunday. The time of Septuagesima is somewhat like a prelude to Lent, the traditional time for spiritual reform. That is why the liturgy presents us today with a program which we must put into effect in order to bring about within ourselves a new serious conversion so that we may rise again with Christ at Easter. So you can read the rest of my letter to readers at catholicfamilynews.com when you get a chance. And with that, we will go ahead and start our first story. As I mentioned in the introduction, it's uh, Pope Francis's current trip to Africa. And I think Brian was going to put on the screen a the webpage for the official visit so you can see the lovely graphics. They always come up with the uh, real humdingers for these. For yeah, these I mean, like we've said with the uh, the one for the Synod, I mean, it's like they've got a cartoonist for Sesame Street at the Vatican. Right. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, there we this go. Is, I guess that's supposed to be Pope Francis. I, I, I mean, I guess. <laughs> and maybe a donkey there in the corner. Maybe a donkey. I mean, it looks like a kindergartner. Like this is the, the next, of Christ. Yeah, the next one down. I like they got the like a really bad graphic of two guys shaking hands or something. Uh, yeah, it's just it's just embarrassing. It really is. It really is. So this week, Tuesday, January 31st, Pope Francis departed from Rome for a long-awaited trip to Africa. This was actually scheduled to take place last July, but he wasn't able to go. I forget if it was for health reasons or other reasons, but had to be rescheduled for this year. So he is currently in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which is a Central African nation. And some may remember that years, decades ago, it was uh, known as Zaire, which will come into play later. So he will stay there to, all through today and then travel northeast tomorrow morning to the smaller nation of South Sudan, which broke off from the nation of Sudan in 2011. And there's it's a pretty troubled area of the world, even in Africa. And just as a side note, his visit to South Sudan, as you may have noticed on that graphic or on the page, rather, is being billed as an, quote, ecumenical peace pilgrimage. And Saturday, February 4th, happens to mark the fourth anniversary of his heterodox document on human fraternity, which he signed uh, in Abu Dhabi, February 4th, 2009. So just as a prediction, I, I expect he will make reference to that document while he's in mm. South Sudan. We'll see if I'm right. Mm. But at any rate, uh, Vatican News released a brief highlights video, which gives a glimpse of what the trip has included thus far. And we'll take a look at that real quick here.
So as we saw in that uh, video footage, I mean, it's it's great that everyone is so joyful and everything. Um, the Pope presided over an outdoor mass. There were a couple of short snippets from that mass at uh, Nadolo Airport in Kinshasa. And the mass was celebrated uh, like the little the girls in the white dresses when they were dancing and everything. That was actually during the mass. And in, in the Congo, they celebrate mass according to something called the Roman Missal for the Dioceses of Zaire uh, or Zaire Rite. And it was approved by the Vatican in 1988 when the Congo was still called Zaire, hence the name of the missile. Mm -hmm. So here is some footage. Just a little uh, as kind of ironic statement on all this Novus Ordo stuff that it's like outdated. Like even the name <laughs> of it is outdated before it's been around for too long. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So we, I was, a, I wasn't able to download footage of the, the mass at the airport for some reason it wouldn't work on my computer but we do have footage from a zaire Wright mass that was celebrated last july in saint peter's basilica uh july 3rd 2022 so this is what the, the zaire Wright looks like fully approved full communion etc etc And remember, this was celebrated after the publication of Traditionis Custodis, by the way. Got their liturgical mask on there, I see. Yes. <laughs> Presentation of the gifts. Dancing. And again, this took place in St. Peter's Basilica. So could, I don't know what that little thing yeah. at the end she was holding. I don't, was that like a stuffed animal? I don't know. I'm not sure. A couple observations. So according to Francis in Traditionis Custodes, quote, the liturgical books promulgated by St. Paul VI and St. John Paul II are the unique expression of the Lex Orandi of the Roman Rite. He's not referring to this. He's referring to the Mass of Paul VI. So I'm not sure how they get a pass. Is Francis going to force Congolese Catholics, as he said in his letter, attached to Traditionis Custodes to, quote, return in due time to the Roman Rite promulgated by Paul VI and John Paul II? I think we know the no, answer to that. of course but, not. <laughs> um, so in honor of the Pope's trip and in light of his use of the Zaire rite while he's in the Congo, Vatican News published an interesting interview with a Father Michel uh, Limbambu, who is a Congolese priest and, quote, an expert on the church fathers and an official in the dicastery for divine worship and the discipline of the sacraments. So his boss is Cardinal Arthur Roach. Uh, the interviewer asked this priest, quote, what is the historical context of the Zaire rite celebrated according to the Roman Missal for the dioceses of Zaire? And here's how the priest answered. This rite has a history. It's the fruit of the work of missionary evangelization. I highly doubt Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre would agree with that statement. Uh, he goes on, from the first evangelization by the Portuguese to the second evangelization by the Belgian missionaries. Again, when Archbishop Lefebvre was in French-speaking Africa, they were not using whatever that thing is. They were mm -hmm. celebrating the traditional Latin mass. Um, he goes, you know, he, and he makes reference to a document by Pope Benedict the Fifteenth, 
back in 1919, which we've run in the newspaper, which is an excellent apostolic letter, Maximum Elud, about missionary work. But Benedict XV did not mention anything about radical changes to the liturgy in order to evangelize people effectively. Yeah, this is how disingenuous they are, right? They want to say like, oh, no, this is nothing new, nothing new. Oh, look, Benedict XV said this, and they throw this in it totally disingenuously. I and mean, Benedict XV would be appalled. He probably would right. excommunicate the people, but he'd say, what are you people doing? But they act like, oh, yeah, he was, this is a long time coming. Like this is their, right. one side of the mouth, they want to talk about how unique Vatican II is, but then on the other side, they want to say, oh, no, 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 this is all normal. Benedict XV, mm -hmm. yes, his point was, you don't force them to, you know, change their 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 everyday language. They're sort of non-religious customs that are not Right. harmful or lead to sin, that's fine. But he nowhere says that the liturgy should be turned into a hootenanny. That exactly. is unique to the Second Vatican Council. But they they link that letter together with Vatican II to try to act like they're saying the same thing when they're right. not. And the very next thing that priest says is, in fact, then there is the Second Vatican Council, mainly the document Sacrosanctum Concilium, which strongly pushed for the liturgy to be closer to the people. And that, of course, we agree with, just to take a brief look at that document. Sacrosanctum Concilium, Article 37 says, even in the liturgy, the church has no wish to impose a rigid uniformity in matters which do not implicate the faith or the good of the whole community. Rather, does she respect and foster the genius and talents of the various races and peoples? Article 38 says, provisions shall also be made when rev revising the liturgical books for legitimate variations and adaptations to different groups, regions, and peoples, especially in mission lands, provided, they say, that the substantial unity of the Roman rite is preserved. Well, we'll get into some of the particulars of this Zaire rite, and you can make your judgment about that. Finally, the document says, uh, Article 40, in some places and circumstances, however, an even more radical adaptation of the liturgy is needed. Hmm. And my question all of this is how can the substantial unity of the Roman rite be preserved while allowing for virtually endless various adaptations or very endless variations and adaptations rather even radical ones obviously it can't be the substantial unity cannot be preserved when you allow for all these things um, so let's getting back to the interview the uh, priest says in 1960 69, immediately after the publication of the Roman Missal in the wake of Vatican II, the Episcopal Conference of Zaire submitted a draft of the Missal readapted for the celebration of Mass according to the Congolese style. He goes on to claim this rite, meaning the Zaire rite, is essentially within the framework of the Roman Mass, but it also has some peculiarities, I'll say. Yeah, <laughs> So he, he gives some examples. The entrance procession with singing and clapping, invocation of the ancestors. That's particularly problematic because a lot of these people's ancestors are probably not even Christians. So it's not. That's a very pagan of, concept. It's a pagan concept right. to sort of deify ancestors. Yes. Exactly. So very problematic. Uh, dancing around the altar, sitting for the gospel instead of standing, standing which I guess supposedly in their culture as a sign of respect and veneration for Christ. Uh, this is really bizarre. Uh, <laughs> the Kyrie comes after the homily in the, the Zaire rite. So instead of starting by confessing our sins and expressing our sorrow for sins, uh, 
they wait until after the gospel and homily for that just a seemingly random change but ultimately this priest claims in the interview which i i'm sure we can guess where he stands on the traditional latin mass quote a liturgy that is too formalistic does not vitalize <laughs> the liturgy is not only a lesson but above all the life of believers who pray and he and ends by saying this rite is not the product of a laboratory but of the life of the church to express catholicity and africanness whatever that's supposed to mean okay um, francis well the roman rite vitalizes me so is that your yes. standard uh yeah. and i don't want the product of the concilium laboratory but the life of the church to express catholicity so yes. if that works for them, why does it not work for us? I mean, this is obviously just exploding the hypocrisy of these modernists. Yes. And on just a final note, before we go to our next story, uh, recall that in late 2020, the Vatican Publishing House released a book about this Zairean rite that features a preface written by Pope Francis in which he says, quote, the Zairean rite suggests a promising way also for the possible elaboration of an Amazonian rite. So in the mind of Francis, this Zairean rite is a springboard to basically a Pachamama mass. So that yes. could, be, which that would could be, be coming. Which would be the one Roman rite, of course. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. Yes. Unbelievable. Wow. Well, speaking of unbelievable. <laughs> yes. So as Matt alluded to in the uh, beginning, uh, Francis doesn't like to answer dubias that actually ask him to defend his modernism. Uh, as you know, we know, four cardinals submitted years ago now a du mm -hmm. dubia questions on Amoris Laetitiae, which they said seems to contradict Catholic teaching on various points outlined in the dubia. It's nothing, complete and utter silence from uh, Pope Francis. He does not. Uh, respond, won't, won't even acknowledge it. Uh, Archbishop Vigano presents in his testimony uh, various accusations. Moses runs, I'm remaining silent, not going to say anything. Right. But then he gets a letter from Father James Martin, formerly a Jesuit, sometime Jesuit, uh, and he answers this immediately. Now, this relates to a story we just reported on, the AP interview. So th this is barely weeks old. Martin sees it, writes a letter, immediately, virtually, like almost instantaneously gets back a handwritten note. Now, I'm not a handwriting expert, but right. this is supposed to be a handwritten note of Pope Francis. And the speed of the response speaks volumes in and of itself, that he has the yes. ear of the Pope, if that's true. Uh, exactly. So, and that first of all, it gets through the Vatican, that he able to get his dubia to the Pope that quickly and get a response. So here's the serious questions raised. Again, this relates to the, to help clarify things, right? We ask these questions. Holy Father, thank you for your strong call to decriminalize homosexuality. Why did you decide to say that th this at this time? Okay. These seems to have been some confusion about your comment. Being gay is a sin, which, of course, is no part of church teaching. My feeling was you were simply repeating what others might say hypothetically. So do you think that simply being gay is a sin? So in a, in a court of law, that would be called leading the witness. Leading the witness, think, yes. right. <laughs> what would you say to Catholic bishops who still support 
the criminalization of homosexuality. And again, here is the handwritten response. Uh, you can make out uh, uh, there the name, Father Martin. Uh, but they have for us uh, retyped it so we can read a little more easily. Uh, yes. Dear brother, thank you for your letter. It is not the first time that I speak of homosexuality and of homosexual persons. Well, that's for sure. Seems that's all you seem to care to talk about. And I wanted to clarify that it is not a crime in order to stress that criminalization is neither good nor just. So he doubles down on this point, which means you have a right to this if it is not just and a criminal. Not to mention he's also contradicting God himself, who calls it yes. a crime in the Old Testament. So yes. When I said it is a sin, I was simply referring to Catholic moral teaching. Oh, that's all. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Which says that every sexual act outside of marriage is a sin. Now, notice how ambivalent this is. Because if he's going to accept gay marriage, then this would no longer be a sin. This is very cleverly worded, right? <laughs> uh, of course... One must also consider the circumstances, which may decrease or eliminate fault. Now, again, this is where they take truthful statements about culpability and say, again, may decrease culpability. And this is really true. Someone who's raised by sick parents who teach their children there's nothing wrong with this. Again, their culpability may be diminished. They have been misled. However, remember the natural law is written on the heart. And yes. so our ultimate culpability cannot, according to Catholic teaching, be eliminated. Again, it can be diminished. Correct. We've kind of had to over overcome this bad teaching, but because it is written on the heart and is part of not just the divine law, but the natural law, our culpability can never be completely eliminated. Because as St. Paul said, those who know not the law, mm -hmm. right, know the law in their heart. It is written in their heart. So and no so one... I was just going to say, nobody can be invincibly ignorant of the natural law. That's not no. possible. Now, exactly. Sort of an example. There are things that are by sort of positive law. It's the positive law of the church. Let's say when it said you had a fast on Friday. Nobody ever tells you that. Okay, there your culpability is diminished and is in fact eliminated because you could not know that's a law without ever being told of it. Right? right. You've never catechized. I mean, never this is different because this is not merely an act of positive law. God does not make sodomy a sin just because he feels like it. It is a sin because God couldn't say otherwise. And that's not a constraint on God. It's a constraint on nature because it is against nature. It is, right. it is not this that he's like, well, I think I'll make that a sin, which is the voluntarist attitude. He has to declare it a sin because it is by its very nature such and therefore it can never he is absolutely this is a false statement it cannot eliminate fault as right. you can see i was repeating something in general i should have said it is a sin as is any sexual act outside of marriage this is so to speak the matter of sin ah but you know well the catholic morality not only takes into consideration the matter but also evaluates freedom and intention and this for every kind of sin. Well, again, this is wanting to make all the exceptions and nuances the rule. So mm. you, you don't decriminalize it, but you do what the criminal law says. There may be diminished capacity. So this is still a crime, but your punishment may be diminished. There is extenuating circumstances. There are mitigating factors. You were uh, uh, enraged by why something was done to you. Again, that's all there, but that doesn't change the fact that murder is still wrong even mm -hmm. if you may have diminished. But notice how he wants to say 
he wants to draw this wedge, which, well, that's what the theology says. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We paid homage to that. Now we go on and basically explain it all away, and it doesn't matter. But I also think there is something very nefarious out there, defining this every outside of marriage. Well, he's in the business of defining the word marriage, Morris Letizier. So I think that's going to be their next step. Oh, as long mm-hmm. as you, you don't get, quote, married to somebody else, then it's, then it's okay, uh, even though it's not the marital act within marriage. Now, his last response, and I would tell whoever wants to criminalize homosexuality, they are wrong. Well, wait, Francis, what about the circumstances? What about, you can't make a definitive, so notice he can make a definitive statement, you are wrong. Ah, but we don't know, we can't say, we, all the circumstances. I mean, this is just, again, hypocrisy, utter, utter hypocrisy. One last line, I pray for you and for your work. Again, wow. he can't lavish his praise on this this priest who confirms people in their sin. He tells them it's okay, you're great the way you are. He, I mean, talk about culpability. One day he will have to answer to God as a priest whose obligation is to lead people from sin for all the souls he has misled and led into sin. He bears responsibility for uh, for what how he misleads. Yep. So. Uh, again, here's all the proof. That's the letter they sent. Here's the handwritten letter. So again, all these neocons who want to explain away, Francis is, it? look, he is promoting this. He is doubling down on it. This synod is lined up to mainstream, make this to overturn in practice. He'll pay lip service to it. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's a catechism. But mm-hmm. just like with divorced and remarried. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Only get married once, indissoluble. But in the real world, you can do whatever you want. That is where right. he's headed very, very clearly. Right. And just a couple of weeks ago, if people might recall, James Martin was tweeting out, uh, Pete Buttigieg is married, not with quote marks around married. In, in Father Martin's mind, those two sodomites are married. And, because, and again, this is why it says so. And then he doubled down on it when he was challenged about it. Yes, right, he meant exactly. that. So again, this is where they're going to exploit that. Oh, well, they're married now. So it's uh, it's OK. Yep. All right. Well, we'll move on to our next story about this new um, prefect. Before we go, there's a little footnote to this story. Uh, So the world over interviewed Father uh, Murray, uh, who I think, again, not a traditionalist per se, but had uh, some interesting things to say about this whole scandal. Now, the Pope, unfortunately, is becoming an advocate of decriminalization of anti-sodomy laws. And it's hard to believe that we would say that. In that same interview, uh, he quotes, uh, he's quoted as saying that, you know, he knows African bishops are against changing those laws. He said they have to undergo a process of conversion. And I'm shaking my head. The people have to undergo conversion of those who want to commit sodomy, not the bishops who are telling them this is a sin, it's wrong, and the state should not legitimize it. So, you know, what is the basis where you would decriminalize sodomy? Do people have a right to commit sodomy? Is this somehow now a human right? That's what the left claims. The Catholic Church doesn't say that. Now, what about people who engage in prostitution? They're going to say, well, I I don't like being stigmatized by laws that criminalize prostitution. Incest is against the law. People might say, well, that's consensual among adults. Why can't they do it? So a lot of confusion here. You know, I've worked with Courage over the years, and one of the most discouraging things that Courage members talk about is when the hierarchy doesn't teach the truth in a clear and understandable way. I mean, who's going to be happy with this decriminalization of sodomy? It's not that people support church teaching. They're, they're stunned. The Pope, if anything, should be saying, 
laws that lead people into sin should never become law. So Amen. there you have, I'm stunned. Well, maybe you should have been stunned the last 60 years because this has all been brought about by the naturalism of Gaudium et Spes from the Second Vatican Council. So yes. And it's also a lot of this um, infiltration of the church, you know, as our friend, our departed friend, George Newmeyer, God rest his soul, talked what he was planning to do with his new podcast was go after what he called these these heretics, these creeps, these sodomites, etc. And the infiltration of the church by all these kinds of, of degenerate people uh, has a lot to do with who are bishops in the in the church right now. Because, for example, if... Um, you know, if bishops would stand up and and refuse to tolerate uh, Father James Martin's errors, his his homo heresy, as some have called it, he wouldn't get away with this. But they don't, and so he does. And the office in the Vatican that has a direct role in choosing, you know, uh, recommending to the Pope the men who should be made bishops is the dicastery for bishops. And now we have a new uh, leader for that Vatican office. The Vatican announced uh, this week, Monday, January 30th, that the, uh, the Holy Father has accepted the resignation of Canadian Cardinal Mark Ouellette from the offices of the Prefect of the Dicastery for Bishops and President of the Pontifical Commission for Latin America, and has called Bishop Robert Francis Prevost, who is an Augustinian, until now Bishop of Chiclal. Uh, Layo, Peru, to succeed Ouellette in the same offices. So he's now an archbishop. Uh, he will acquire the title of Archbishop Bishop Emeritus of Chiclayo on uh, April 12th of this year. So to just to go back a little bit, what is the Dicastery for Bishops and why is it so important? According to the Vatican's description of the office, the Dicastery for Bishops is responsible for all matters pertaining to the establishment and provision of particular churches, in other words, dioceses around the world, and to the exercise of the Episcopal office in the Latin church. So in other words, this means no man is raised to the Roman Catholic Episcopate without being vetted and approved by this office. So whoever leads this dicastery has enormous power and influence in the appointment of bishops worldwide. That's why this is a big deal. So several outlets have reported on this, one of which is our, our friends at LifeSite News. I'll just read a little bit about this bishop's background. Uh, Prevost is a relative newcomer to the Roman Curia. He was made a member of the Congregation for Clergy in July 2019, and then a member of the Congregation for Bishops in November 2020, becoming a rare non-cardinal member of the congregation. I'm sure now that he's been named a prefect, he will yeah. surely be made a cardinal at the next con or not conclave at the next uh, consistory, I should say. So the LifeSide report goes on: a member of the Order of Saint Augustine (OSA) since 1977, he was ordained a priest in 1982. He was also born and raised in Chicago, I should add. Um, so he was ordained in 1982 in Rome. Prevost spent a number of years in the OSA missions in Peru, serving different terms in the Trujillo mission as community prior and formation director, as well as being judicial vicar for the Archdiocese of Trujillo. 
He became a bishop in November 2014 when Pope Francis appointed him as an apostolic administrator of Peru's Diocese of Chiclayo. The Augustinian has been bishop of the diocese since 2015. Um, and then one noteworthy thing in the LifeSite report, it notes, as with Cardinal Wallet, neither is provost or prevost rather free from criticisms regarding instances of sexual abuse. As you may recall, Cardinal Wallet has been accused in recent months of, of sexual uh, harassment, essentially in, inappropriate touching when he was the cardinal in, um, forget the sea in Canada, I think Quebec, if I'm Quebec, not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. So the LifeSite report goes on, following Prevost's March 1st, 2021 private audience with the Pope, the pillar wrote that the Augustinian had allowed an abuser priest to live in a property owned by the order, very close to a Catholic school and next, next to a daycare center. The Chicago Sun reported that hundreds of recently disclosed church documents seen by LifeSite News revealed that former priest James Ray, accused of serial sexual abuse of minors, was allowed to live in the Augustinian's St. John Stone Priory from September 2000. So that's pretty significant. It's always interesting to look at the, you know, the opposition's reporting on this. I took a look at uh, the National Catholic Reporter, or as John Venari would say, the National Catholic Distorter, and they don't seem to have many objections to this uh, man's appointment. Uh, if anything, they're glad that uh, Cardinal Wollett is finally on his way out. They say, this is National Catholic Reporter, over the last 12 years, Cardinal Wollett, 78 years old, has played an outsized role in shaping the Catholic hierarchy throughout the world. And they kind of decry that he's known as a conservative in the church. Which he's not, really. really not, not accurate. True. I guess yeah. from their perspective, he's qualifies yeah. as a conservative. And then also America Magazine's reporting is pretty much the same, just kind of giving further background. But they do note, just to drive home the point how important this office is, uh, the prefect for the dicastery for bishops is the Pope's main advisor, America Magazine says, in matters relating to the nomination of bishops for the Latin Church in Europe, North and South America, Australia, and New Zealand. The prefect meets the Pope on a regular basis, and it is important that he is on the same page as the pontiff. So it's amazing to think, really, that an American is now in this post, the chief advisor to the Pope for making mm. bishops. Um, and obviously, we know where Francis stands on American you know, con conservatives or those who are traditional-minded, so obviously this man cannot fall into either of those categories. But on a final note for this story, I just think we should ask the question, is now Archbishop Prevost connected to Theodore McCarrick's so-called nephews? And I want to read to you from a Twitter thread that was posted by our friend George Newmeyer uh, on December 23rd. So this was before he left for Africa a couple, you know, two or three weeks before his tragic death. This is what he posted on Twitter. A source close to McCarrick tells me that he is still talks to his, quote, nephews, such as Supich and the Pope. He arranged for his protege uh, Nestout, in other words, McCarrick arranged for his protege Nestout to be chairman of the U.S. Bishop's Abuse Committee so that Nestout could run interference for him during his criminal trial next year. So McCarrick is supposed to be going on trial next year. We'll see if that happens. 
George, <clears throat> George continues in his Twitter thread, the reason for McCarrick's continuing power in the church is blackmail, according to my source. Plus, Teddy can get all the deep-pocketed prelates under his spell of blackmail to ostracize and financially starve any bishop who defies him. And he quotes his source as saying, he still runs things in the church. What a terrifying thought if that's true. <laughs> so I think there is something to, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if Cardinal Supich had a role in this particular bishop being appointed, mm. especially since he's was born and raised in Chicago. I don't know anything about the man, but it would not surprise me that there's a McCarrick connection in this story somewhere. And again, I don't know this uh, Bishop Prevost very much. So I don't know if these allegations are true or not, but what I do know is this is how the deep state and deep church operate. What, what mm -hmm. was just described about McCarrick, they actually like to lure these people into committing these sins or covering them up to blackmail them, to control them later. Right. So that's often the point. A lot of people just think they're just sick people who just want to do these sick things. It may be, but actually it's often more calculated than that. If I get yeah. them to cover up, to do this, I now, now I own them and I can blackmail them mm -hmm. to do what I want. And that we know, I mean, that is how the deep state works. Uh, they get dirt on people and then they get them into power and they tell them what to do. Um, again, I think that's what that's what I think is so scary about these documents that classified documents that Biden had. Not that he had classified documents, but they were probably showing that he was selling them to the Chinese. And I think largely he's probably compromised. I mean, that's why he's their puppet, because he's done so many things over the years corrupt that they can just you know, expose him at any moment. So it would not right. be implausible that he is part of this network and is therefore going to be uh, doing what uh, what they want. Right. So um, our, our next story uh, is really what I've entitled uh, the springtime of Vatican II, right? <laughs> uh, because again, that's what they constantly, George Weigel, oh, Vatican II, great, 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 save the church, save the church. And first of all, what they always try to run are these uh, counterfactual claims that can never be proven. So you say, well, the church has declined since Vatican II. And their response is, oh, but it would have been worse. The church <laughs> was getting, it was in trouble. And if it weren't for Vatican II, it'd be even worse. There'd be fewer Catholics. So Vatican II really saved the day, even though it looks bad on absolute numbers. Right. If we had done nothing at Vatican II, we would have been worse. Well, it's getting so bad that that's not even a plausible argument anymore. So like, let's say if, if mass attendance goes from like 90 to 70%, their argument is, oh, but it would be over to like 50% if we hadn't had Vatican II. So this is a 20% gain. Well, it's getting so bad that that doesn't even work. So two mm -hmm. cases in point, the latest uh, reports from the Netherlands and, uh, concerning religious practice, right? Uh, data that is published. So when the uh, bishops go for their odd limit of visit, they usually publish just a bunch of facts about their their uh, diocese. Uh, right. So they're getting their preparation for theirs. They estimate the number of practicing Catholics in the country at a whopping 2.7%. Like I said, Oh yeah, it would have been worse without Vatican II. What you would have had like negative number of Catholics? I don't even know like, <laughs> how much how much worse could it get? But it's worse than that, actually. So of the 2.7% of the population that are still nominally Catholic, right? Uh mass attendance among that 2.7%, right, is 7%. Huh. So wow. of the 2.7%. 
they estimate, again, it's a broader survey and things, but just boiling it down, they estimate only 7% right, are even wow. going to mass, right? Um, so welcome to the springtime. Wow. Vatican. So even that argument, oh, Vatican II saved us from a worse problem. Well, uh, that doesn't even hold up anymore. It, it didn't because no. I mean, it's, it's, there's not going to be any Catholics left in countries like that. So moving across Europe to Germany, uh, again, what were the signs of health of the church before the council? Large numbers of Catholics, births, marriages, right? Mm -hmm. And vocations, which were yes. going through the roof. So in 2223, there are 27 dioceses in Germany. There are only in the entire country from all 27 dioceses, 48 new candidates for the priesthood. Wow. So that's not even one per diocese. Only one, not even one, right? That's like half a priest per diocese. It's unsustainable, right? Because right. the average age of priests is, is extremely uh, high. Um, and, and therefore, if more than one priest dies in a diocese, you're not even, you know, replacing them. Now, this is not just a one-off, right? Um, even though this is sort of the lowest it is, but it's been on a trajectory. In 2021, there were 56 candidates, 2020, 54, right? Mm -hmm. You have to go back to 2016 to get a three-digit number, 103. 2007, there were 200, right? So, it's a trajectory. It's not just a blip. It's been going from 200, right. 100 down on a during slide, a particular you know, a pontificate, by the way. <laughs> during a particular pontificate, by the way. Yes. Yes. And that reminds me, I actually saw a tweet on Twitter. I, I think it was Edward uh, Penton who put this out that said, uh, he didn't name the diocese or the bishop, but he said a bishop had a dinner he went to with. Uh, seminarians you know new crop of seminarians mm -hmm. and all of the seminarians in the entire diocese almost all of them came from the one tlm parish and then there were like two or three who came from a novus the only conservative novus ordo parish kind of like a father altman parish must have been right. uh and again so there same kind of thing germany it'd be interesting to see well where are these 48 coming from likely they're coming from like the one or two little relatively conservative parts of Germany or from the fraternity mm -hmm. of St. Peter or the, you know, uh, more traditional, traditional minded areas. Uh, right. Again, that, on top of it, that's the only place there's any growth coming from. Uh, it's certainly not coming from Father Martin. Let's put it that way. No, definitely not. And it's only going to get worse in light of their heretical synodal way, which is going on unabated. That was something else that Father Murray really skewered in his interview with Raymond Arroyo last week was, I forget his exact wording, but essentially if Pope Francis is serious, you know, cause he said in the, the AP interview, Francis criticized this German synodal way or appeared to, as we reported last week, but father Murray, I'll, I'll hit the nail on the head. He said, you know, it's one thing to criticize it. It's another thing to say, stop it. If he was really seriously opposed, he's the vicar of Christ. He's the Roman pontiff. He has supreme jurisdiction in the church. He could say, you're done. You're done with yes. this. Stop. He doesn't want to. Clearly or, you're ex or you're excommunicated. He could do that, but he chooses yes. not to. So Absolutely. obviously he's not really that opposed to it. 
Yes. Well, been a lot of rough stories. We're going to end on a good positive note today. Fortunately, not often we have a positive story. Uh, We've been reporting on Mr. Mark Hulk for a long time. He was sort of one of the first uh, that this, uh, you know, pathetic excuse for a government that's really a tyranny uh, went after. Uh, Remember, after the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade, uh, it it really seems the orders were given to the Justice Department, go persecute pro-life people. He was one of the Mm -hmm. first people rounded up in this Stalin purge uh, and uh, put on trial for violating the Freedom of Access to Clinics Act, this FACE Act. Um, And his trial, he's an older gentleman, has a whole bunch, 11 or 12 children, and what happened was he was there praying at an abortion uh, mill and the, one of these, quote, escorts, this big guy started to kind of roughen up his son. And the, the guy. And I think the him. issue is that he wasn't actually like technically an escort. No. He just happened to be there, right? He just happened to be there. Yes. Yeah. And he uh, defended his son. They got into a bit of a scuffle, no serious hurt or anything. Police pressed no charges of like assault, battery, nothing like that. Just mm-hmm. was a little scuffle. Well, the Biden Injustice Department, the Ministry of Injustice, uh, went after him, sent an FBI SWAT team with guns blaring into his house, kicking down the door and dragged him off. Well, his trial was last week and uh, he was acquitted is the end of the story. Good news. He was acquitted. It was interesting, though. There must have been some pro-radical abortion maniac that got on the uh, jury because they were debating, debating, debating. And then the juror was dismissed. Now, to be get dismissed from a jury, you have to commit some kind of malfeasance. You have to commit some kind of impropriety as a juror. So the mm-hmm. jurors went to the judge, and, and we don't know because it's sealed. All we know is that the one juror was dismissed by the judge, which means they did something shady. An right. alternate, because you always, when you have the trial, there's always the 12 jurors and a couple extra in case something happens to one mm-hmm. of them. As soon as they brought the alternate in, immediately they reached a verdict and was not guilty, which indicates there was this one crazy person who was holding out saying, I'm not, I'm not going to say not guilty, even though mm-hmm. all 11 agreed. Now, again, we don't know what that juror did to get dismissed, but it was almost instant. As soon as they came back after the, the juror was brought in, uh, the alternate, uh, they, he was found not guilty. Uh, so he was interviewed very briefly afterwards. Uh, I'd like to just play a little clip right after his uh, acquittal. Tell me how your faith has brought you and your family through this process. Uh, yeah. We couldn't have done it without faith. Um, you know, honestly, from day one, the moment of the arrest, when I found out that this was even an issue, uh, it was it was all a leap of faith, stepping out and trusting in God and his protection. And he's been there every step of the way uh, through his people, through God's people. There's been so many prayers answered. But just his his peace that, you know, was beyond understanding, as, as we know, and, and the joy that was filling our heart that God would choose my wife and children worthy uh, to suffer in this way for, for the cause, for the movement, for the church, for the body of Christ. So, um, yeah, we just felt privileged and faith has brought us to that point where we feel that. So we've grown in faith. We've asked God to give us greater faith. And through today in this process, through Thomas More, through Brian McMonagle's Yes, uh, we have greater faith and trust in God than ever. So, so yes, the St. Thomas More Legal Society were his... Uh, uh, pro bono counsel. So they, mm-hmm. they, uh, he thanked them. That's wonderful work they've been doing all around the country, defending, yes. uh, among other things, pro-life victims who 
who are being persecuted by the injustice department. Uh, one other little footnote to this story, another story that we that came out just yesterday, the satanic temple has now announced that they are founding a religious place to perform ritualistic abortions. So they're going after to have abortion because they claim that abortions are one of their religious rituals. Again, this is going to, I don't doubt it at all, but this exposes the sort of unclear thinking around this sort of bizarre watering down of the idea of religious free exercise, right? That anything is a religion. Uh, And so now what are the abortionists doing? Oh, well, it's a religious practice of Satan is to kill. Uh, No, I mean, this is, this is how desperate they are. Uh, after states began restricting uh, abortion. So uh, the fight is not over, as we've said, uh, but congratulations, Mr. Hauk. I'm glad your suffering has uh, come to a, a reprieve for you. Yes, and in order to follow uh, Mark Hauk's work, he actually founded an organization quite a while ago, I think, but it's uh, it's called The King's Men, and the mm. website is thekingsmen, all one word, dot org, thekingsmen.org. The organization also has a Twitter account at the King's Men. I'm sure they're on Facebook as well, but I follow them on Twitter and definitely check out the website and see what you can do to support his work because he does a lot of excellent work. Yes. All right. Great. Well, hopefully that gives you a view of the world uh, from a Catholic perspective this February 2nd. Uh, We hope you've enjoyed this program. Please do your part by sharing it, sending it around subscribing so you don't miss any uh, future videos, liking the mm-hmm. uh, the, the video, uh, and uh, also check out our Rumble channel. I mean, you may like, I understand YouTube's functionality is, is very nice, but subscribe to our Rumble channel in case we get uh, censored in this Orwellian world in which we li- live, then you won't, won't yes. miss anything. Uh, as well as our audio podcast, we're on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, and uh, TuneIn and others through Buzzsprout, also their, their main distribution network. So please help us. We don't have the money to promote our content the way a lot of people do. So again, a lot of people you see with millions of views, they pay to get their content promoted. And we, we don't have the month funds for that. So you liking, subscribing, and forwarding can, uh, can help us with that. And as always, you can uh, help support our apostolate by subscribing to the paper. Uh, the February paper was published uh, yesterday. It's uh, available through Zinio. If you have uh, any form of subscription, you have electronic access. So if you, um, you can just uh, activate your account, you're signed up, it'll find you in the database. If you have a paper coming to your house, you have electronic, you may not have realized. Uh, but uh, the papers are in the mail, they take seem longer and longer every month, but you can immediately start reading the paper on our yes. platform Zinio, see our website for how to find that uh, at the end of mm-hmm. this program, uh, as uh, well as consider if you don't have a subscription, subscribing. In addition to a year's subscription, you get access to an archive of back issues. So you really get much more than mm-hmm. a year for a year's subscription. Yes. And in order, if you're curious as to what's in the current issue of the paper, you can visit our website, catholicfamilynews.com. If you hover over the new subscription tab, two other tabs will open up, one of which is this month's edition. You click on that and you can preview the contents of the February 2023 edition. Lots of great stuff in there you won't want to miss out. So please subscribe and support our apostolate. And on that note, as always, we will close by invoking Our Lady and praying together a Hail Mary. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. 
Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Eternal Father, offer you the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and all the instruments of his holy passion, that thou may put division in the camp of thy enemies, for as thy beloved Son has said, a kingdom divided against itself shall fall. Saint Blaise, pray for us. Our Lady of Fatima, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Well, happy happy feast day, uh, blessed uh, Candlemas, and God willing, we'll see you next week. Yes, God bless you.